Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today is my great pleasure to welcome Lauren Craig to the show. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Well, Lauren is the SVP of sales over at checkout.com. They are a global e-commerce processor, and they are actually in expansion mode in physical offices throughout the world, which is fascinating as hopefully we're in the trailing part of COVID here. So we will talk about growth in general. We'll talk about what it means to start opening up in local offices around the world since they have a global presence. And she's also got a super fascinating background. You graduated with a degree in chemistry and then were a chemist working on, I would assume, new paint formulations over at Sherwood-Williams. How in the world did you get from being a chemist to being a, a head of sales? Well, my goal was to be a trauma surgeon. I always had a love for science. Um, when I was younger, I used to play with like electric circuit kits. Um, I had a microscope when I was 10. I just always loved the problem solving analytics of it all and have always been very process oriented. So in everything I do, I think, okay, what's the most efficient way of doing this? I started my first payments job in, in a technical role. So I started off in implementations, moved my way into sales engineering, which really um, developed my love for being client facing, that problem solving, that understanding people's needs and kind of you know skyrocketed from there where I then took over sales. And I, I actually currently lead uh, sales and solution engineering at checkout. Every time I bring and talk to a client, I, I'm always trying to find what are your pain points? How can we help? It just really goes and ties back to my analytical self. I love that you lead both sales and solution engineering because it's a, it's a good tip for something that's been on my mind. I, I read this book about a week or two ago that I'm still digesting. Most sales books are relatively similar. I mean, you get some good nuggets here and there, but mostly they're reinventing the wheel with their own terminology, I guess, to sell their own system. This one uh, was written, it's called The Machine. I had never heard of it before, written by Justin Roth Marsh. And he makes the argument that we, speaking of kind of process, uh, he comes from the manufacturing world, and he makes the argument that we are not over-specialized in sales. In fact, we're under-specialized, which I thought was fascinating. And part of the specialization that he was arguing for is that AEs should exclusively meet with customers and everything else, like all the proposal creation and solution design and all the rest of it should be done by, he calls them project leaders, but you know, solutions engineer. Where is the dividing line for you at checkout with respect to what your AEs do and what your solutions engineers do? That's a good question. So we kind of take the 80-20 approach. So we feel that sales should know 80% of you know, our products, our solutions, of the pain points, of the different regions. Another thing is we are a global payment processor. So it's not that we just need to learn the US market. You do have to know all the different global markets, including interchange, global rules, you know, sometimes scheme compliance, which differs between region and region. One other thing in my history is I used to work in restaurants. So I bartended and was a, a server for almost 10 years. And I kind of look at that as like the small restaurant model versus the large restaurant m model where you go to fine dining and the server, all they do is interact with the guest. And they have somebody that delivers the dishes. They have somebody that buses the tables. They have somebody that delivers the drinks. Whereas in the small customer experience is that the server is the bartender. They're the busser. They're, they deliver the food. And that's really kind of how we are, I would say, a pretty healthy mix of between both where the server is obviously responsible for talking to the customer and understanding, but they should also know the secret sauce. They should also know how to make a martini and 
She also knows how to clean up a table, but you, we do have the supporting roles, especially in the solution engineering, where they are going to know and they should know that 20%. They should know that additional kind of details and also be commercial facing. So I think we, we at least try to make that very seamless of, you know, AE is your main point of contact. Solution engineer is involved to, you know, really help facilitate those technical discussions, work with our product team, but also really serve as that, like holding the salesperson accountable. Do you think it builds a sense of trust that you have a solution engineer on calls? Because it it just holds the salesperson accountable to make sure that they're selling the appropriate things at the appropriate time. Uh, Some organizations are starting to distinguish the role of a value engineer versus a solutions engineer or a sales engineer. And I'm just thinking about your 80-20 split. You know, the value engineer might be taking more time to understand what is the ultimate business problem being solved, not just the technical. Is that a responsibility that you think it makes sense to A, separate as a different role or, you know, sort of keep that with the AEs, which I would assume is where that is, or transfer that to the solutions engineer? Where, Where should value engineering go? I mean, I personally believe it should stay with the AE. I believe the the salesperson's job is to to help the customer. That's where they kind of show their value. And I think what's also interesting is you might take a merchant, let's just say digital content that sells a you know recurring subscription, and you can ask you know three customers that are would consider themselves competitors, and all three of them would have very different needs. And I think it's a it's the job of the uh, the AE to really understand you know what is important to them. Sometimes it's optimization. So maybe there aren't any problems and maybe there's no pain points of their current provider, but maybe they want to optimize or maybe they want to look into a new region or maybe they want to bring in new payment methods. All those things are, are not solving necessarily a, a problem, but could be something to help help expand and, and optimize what they're currently doing. And it's also on the AE to help identify that. The solution consultant, their role is to really bring that to life and actually talk about an actuality. You have one other super fascinating thing, which I've rarely seen. In fact, I'm trying to think of, of even a single example of this, of somebody who went from the head of sales operations to the head of sales. It usually does not happen. Oftentimes, right, the head of sales is someone who got promoted up through the sales management layers, and, and usually operations folks are a little different. How did that opportunity come about for you? And, and what would you advise people who are in sales operations that might aspire to being heads of sales? That's kind of a unique story as far as job title goes, because when I joined Checkout three and a half years ago, you know, Checkout was newer to the U.S. market. And really, I was I was doing everything I could. I was leading RFP. So I found our RFP software. I was managing all of our U.S. relationships. I was managing our um, third party relationships with third parties that we leveraged in the U.S. I think we used the title sales ops before we actually had a true sales ops function in Checkout. With the hopes of like, hey, I'm doing I'm doing what I can. I'm not sales and I'm not marketing. So let's just call it sales ops. Uh, we now have a, a dedicated team to sales ops. And I would say I was doing part of that, but they are far more successful in it than I was. There is a natural progression of me wanting to stay client facing. And I uh, previously used to run relationship management uh, in the payment facilitator team at WorldPay. And one thing I realized there is that I, I missed being on the front end of things. And so being handed an opportunity after it was already won, it just wasn't my jam. I, I realized I really liked being upfront. I always thought operations would be kind of where I would end up given the analytical nature, but it turns out I, I really like talking to people. That's incredible. And I was an engineer way, way back when, although I don't consider myself an extrovert, but I, I do enjoy this sort of in-depth one-on-one conversation. 
with respect to you know you wanting to be out in front of customers, sometimes you know AEs are considering whether they move up into the management ranks or continue to be awesome individual sellers. They worry about that, right? They worry that they may not get as much time in front of prospects and customers. How have you found the the way to continue to engage customers as as you've moved up through the management ranks? Yeah, I think it's setting expectations with your team on how to engage you and when to bring you into conversations. My role is to manage the team. Without the team, my role doesn't exist and I don't exist. And so that always comes first and foremost. But I still think that the team looks to me to also be part of those merchant conversations, especially the ones that are a bit more difficult. Also knowing that I have that technical background. And I think it balances very well with with managing an AE team. Do you ever worry about coming off as too technical. And here, here's why I say that, right? If you are drawn to the technical, how do you come off as being equal business stature with, with the people that you're engaging? That is a very good point. And it took me a few months once getting into the sales leader role to really balance it. I definitely feel that I was probably too realistic. I'm sure customers very much appreciate, but there is some creativity that also needs to go into it. And so it's not always black and white. There is a gray area and it took me a while to embrace the gray area. Of the countries that you guys are doing business in, where seems to be more ready to open offices and get back out there face to face and where where seems to be more locked down? Yeah, so we're headquartered in London. Their plan to get out of lockdown is coming together and they're easing up on lockdown restrictions. Um, so that's around where 60% of our employees are currently based. And so I think the team there and, and really where our product and engineering hubs are based as well. Uh, so there's a plan to get back to the office in the next few weeks in our HQ. Several offices that have been open for a few months. So Dubai, um, Hong Kong offices have been um, open. And so, of course, as the vaccine gets, you know, more readily available, as more people are getting the vaccines, I think that we'll just see more acceleration of those offices being open and um, available to employees with obviously all the COVID rules in place, all the things we need to do as a business. In a world where you see more and more big companies taking a note from what has happened over the past year and saying, you don't have to come in, right? You can work from home. Google, I think, did that too, a few other a few other companies. What benefit, strategic benefit, do you see to actually having dedicated offices? Yeah, I definitely think big tech has been driving the back to work, especially in Silicon Valley and you know the Bay Area around when we expect people to go back to work. I think for us, the benefit of being in person is just those I would call like water cooler discussions, overhearing, you know, calls with clients, you know, learning from each other and having those, again, those 10 to 15 minute chats that you learn so much from that today being in remote environment, you really don't get those interactions. Everything is very calculated. You know, you schedule a meeting or you're reading through your Slack channels and it's a lot of effort to put forth conversations. Whereas in an office, you can, you know, when you have 33 minutes, you can talk to 10 people all within that 30 minutes versus Slack. It's very difficult to do all that. Yeah, I'm also curious about your mix between field and inside selling. Are you? I would presume if you're if you're opening all these offices, you you must a little be a little bit more skewed towards inside sales. We're more field sales today. You know, our our market really is enterprise, and so with enterprise clients, they do require a bit more handholding and you know, kind of cold outreach strategies don't work as well. I think we're also coming from a place of thought leadership. We've launched a a lot of um, recent white papers. You know, we have a connected payments white paper, even started doing some regionalization. So we've been in the MENA region for almost 10 years now. 
And so that's one region where we've like really excelled. And now we have, you know, lots of um, data and information that we put together in a white paper for, for our kind of enterprise merchants to read through. What was most interesting to you about doing business in Middle East, North Africa, or Asia Pac, or Western Europe? What has been the most unexpected thing that you found? Yeah, so my previous payments experience has really been US based. In the US, we don't really have that many payment methods. You know, we have, you know, the four major card schemes, we have bank transfers through ACH, and then we have wallets, which namely are Apple Pay and Google Pay. I think now we've been seeing, you know, buy now, pay later, but even then you're you're still paying with a visa, you're still paying, you're still paying with a credit card. Um, so I think the biggest thing with working at a global payment processing company that has and supports many regions is learning all the different payment methods and kind of all the rules behind those local payment methods. Uh, so in the Middle East in particular, we support um, several um, LPMs, local payment methods. But like, for example, benefit pay requires you to have a, a Bayron legal entity. Same thing with like Knet, which requires you to have a legal entity in Kuwait. However, something like Fowry, um, which is a, a cash payment method out of Egypt, you can actually use a European legal entity for. And so it's learning all these different payment methods, how the customer actually interacts. I I think it's been really interesting and kind of a a big learning curve for me personally, coming from mostly U.S. market. And then like, oh, wow, people are paying in so many different ways in the world that just aren't reflective really in the U.S. market today. So in addition to having to have the technical knowledge about how people pay, I'm also curious if the enterprise sales motion varies tremendously across regions. I mean, you hear the you hear the things that, you know, in certain countries, it's all about the relationship. And if you don't, you're not even going to talk business until you've had dinner and drinks 10 times before you talk business. Is there really that big of a difference as you go region to region? Or is there more an internationalized business culture? I think there's a huge difference between how our sales team approach things globally. Um, in the Middle East, um, we kind of joke and say, like, you have to go smoke hookah. And really, that's how we also built out our solution there as we smoked hookahs with our, um, you know, the issuing banks and built out relationships, which is also why we we have very good approval ratios in that region. We kind of take the, the land and expand approach as well with merchants where a leverage us in one region, A, B, test us, see how we perform and then go from there. And because of our platform, the, the one integration for global payments, it does allow for that land and expand without having very little lift from the merchant perspective. Leading with price sometimes is part of the conversation sooner than it would be would be in the U.S. So price is usually one of the last things we talk about. It's really around building relationships. Whereas in Europe, what I feel is that, hey, let, let's understand the price first, then we'll continue with conversations and build that relationship. A lot of times in enterprise selling, and I think this is this is actually relates back to that book I mentioned earlier. You know, this these senior people are not necessarily respond to an SDR email or an SDR phone call. Do you adapt your prospecting then to either have a different title for your SDRs or do you do something else business process wise so SDRs are not engaging senior execs in in the US? Yeah, we're definitely expanding our SDR function in the US. So I think that even with our SDR function, we try not to use sequencing or we try not to use generic sequencing. We want to capture what we believe are pain points. So I think that's reading recent news articles, you know, where that merchant is currently processing, what payment methods are they currently accepting, and taking a really personalized approach on any outreach we do. I also think we're trying to be a bit more creative around how we're doing outreach. So email, 
I don't know about you, but I kind of prioritize WhatsApp, then Slack, then email just from priority view. And I think a lot of, you know, head of payments are kind of doing the same thing, especially in, in the world of COVID and remote working. Um, and so we're trying to be a bit more creative of how can we do outreach? I mean, that's from anything from conferences to LinkedIn to even, you know, white papers, as I mentioned earlier, those kind of thought leadership pieces are lead generators as well. I also liked your idea of kind of broadening to different channels and everything that is dead comes back again, right? Cold calling is dead. Cold calling comes back. Direct mail is dead. Direct mail comes back. The one thing you mentioned that like I feel old and embarrassed that I don't use is WhatsApp. So where does WhatsApp come in your, you know, in your sales and prospecting world? Yeah. I mean, especially when we have those enterprise customers and they have decision makers globally. So there might be a decision maker in Singapore and then one in the U.S., WhatsApp has been a great way to create kind of group uh, messaging. Um, we also use shared Slack channels too. So if the merchant uses Slack, we'll set up a shared Slack channel with them. So that's been a great communication tool, especially during integration. So being able to provide that developer and sales engineering support directly on, on Slack has been super helpful. But really, WhatsApp is really more for the business context, I feel. And Slack has been more for the technical context. You mentioned an interesting point around SDRs. Teeing up, right? Teeing up. Uh, yeah, we, we would define that. So we do do a bit of that um, in our strategic account team. The strategic account team is looking at kind of the top 100 global customers. And we really call that more of like a BD function. So more of a business development function than like really an SDR function, which I think, you know, that you probably have those titles overlap. Um, but we do have a bit of that where it's helping the strategic account team to kind of map out who do we think the decision makers are? Who do we think are, are people that we can contact? And your point, again, around calling people, you're right, cold calling originally was, you know, I think we kind of got away from cold calling. But actually, during COVID, I think people were very, very happy to hop on a phone call. Previously, they were, you know, going to conferences or traveling a bunch or, you know, meeting with their team. And I feel like now people are wanting that human interaction. So we are seeing a lot more people taking phone calls than we did previously. Interestingly enough, right, I think the the contact data providers also have gotten smarter uh, and more effective about, I guess, calling mobile phone numbers. I, I had thought that my mobile phone number was impossible to find. And then lo and behold, it got out there somehow. But they were able to, you know, to sort of convince me to to take the meeting. So, yeah, I was, I was talking this to uh, someone earlier today. And the truth is, we talk so much about calls but we don't actually get so many calls, right? Like we get all, and, and even we talk so much about email and personalization or, or relevance. And yet, if I actually meant to do this earlier today is go through the last hundred cold emails I got in the last couple of days and figure out how many of them actually had any degree of customization to them. It's still incredibly rare. It's very rare. And it's actually a learning tool I use for my team. So I'll send them a cold email and I'll say, this is an awful cold outreach email. <laughs> don't, don't do this. Um, you know, and then there's some that are very good that said, Hey, Lauren, you're like, Oh, I saw that you were a chemist. Very crazy that you're now in sales. Like tell me, you know, I saw that you guys are opening up offices and have seven roles that you're hiring in San Francisco. We help facilitate onboarding people quicker. You talked about what I'm doing. You've done your research. You realize that there's probably an onboarding problem, or maybe there's something that you could help with. And I'm like, that's a very good outreach email. And I'll send that as well. So if there's good outreaches, I'll send it to the team. What's the most creative way anyone has ever prospected you? It doesn't have to be ever. What's the most creative and effective way someone has recently prospected you? I love the personalized gifts. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like videos and like memes. I've seen somebody create like a meme before, which I feel like is just so creative. 
You know, they spent that time, you know, putting together this 15 to 30 second video and they have your name in it. So, you know, it's just for you. Yeah. But I think something beyond the level of just holding the holding the whiteboard, one of the more creative things I've seen lately is to literally draw your email and maybe draw a picture on that email. It does not get more personalized than that. So it's sort of like writing a handwritten note without having to send it through the regular mail. That one, once everybody starts doing it, will destroy it. The way to quote unquote scale that, which I think is horrible, is just to basically photocopy and then just write in the person's name. That's when we've ruined it is when we when we do it that way. Without sharing any secret sauce of how Checkout's been winning, winning some deals recently, I would say that handwritten notes is something that we have leveraged in the past and future that it does bring a, a bit of personalization. So there's, you know, with specific customers and ones that, you know, we want to provide a bit more of a white glove service to. I should say that we want to provide white glove service to everyone. So it doesn't matter of your size and, and where you're at, but that's our goal is to be, make it a bit more personalized. And I do think a handwritten note is a fantastic way of doing it. Well, one of the things you mentioned uh, as we wrap up is, right, you come from that chemistry background, you're extremely process driven. If you had to give advice to sales leaders who didn't necessarily have robust processes within their organization, what are the couple of things that you think are are must get rights to have a smooth running sales organization? Might take me a second to answer that. So I think first and foremost is that everybody on your team has different needs and have different experience. Understanding how each team member is motivated and also understanding how they work. So I have some team members that are fantastic and love cold outreach. I have some that are very good at warm outreach. I have some that prefer to work through partners. I mean, I think understanding how your team member works best and what motivates them is, is key. And then setting that those expectations based on that. So if I set a KPI that you need to do 20 cold outreach emails a week, that wouldn't work for everyone. And that'd be demotivating to some people. Two is, you know, your CRM is your friend. You know, for me, having visibility into what the team is working on without them having to specifically tell me, it reduces down how much, you know, slacks and emails and texts I get per day because they can update the CRM. I can see everything that they have in there without having to consistently bug them. And I think also creating a process for which you expect them to update it. So I do have, for example, on Fridays, there's a 30-minute free reminder that says, update your Salesforce. And then I think lastly is really setting expectations and, and also setting consequences if those things aren't kind of followed. So for example, we do have rules of engagement because we are a global team. We do have other global you know, sales leaders and different sales teams. And you know, we need to work together. We need to work together well. So if you don't follow the rules of engagement, there should be consequences to that when appropriate. Wow. I feel like I just drank from a fire hose so, and learned a ton about kind of everything, about career progression in different roles, about sales process, about selling in different regions. So I'm really grateful. Well, since you guys just raised money and are opening offices, I presume you're in a mad hiring uh, spree at this point. If people want to get in front of you guys, what's the best way for them to, to get an opportunity at checkout? Yeah, we are hiring like crazy. Definitely put in put in your name. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can email me at lauren.craig at checkout.com. And then all of our opportunities and career opportunities are listed on the website. Just scroll to the bottom, click on careers, and they're all listed there. Incredible chat. And I love talking to former scientists and engineers like myself. So thank you so much for your time today. Yes, you as well. Thank you. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. 
This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.